Empire Strikes Back finally opened on May 21, 1980, it didn't meet expectations, it surpassed them. Within three months, George Lucas had recovered his $33 million investment. There was something about Empire that just immediately just clicked when I saw it. I didn't know how all the romance was going to work and the adventure, and it was a too serious and all this sort of stuff, uh, but it really came together. Until its premiere, cases of lightning striking twice were rare in Hollywood. Sequels were almost always a letdown. But in the Star Wars universe, different laws applied, and George Lucas, the world's most successful independent filmmaker, was fast becoming a law unto himself. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, but it feels close like a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. Fans of my generation love to talk about seeing Star Wars in movie theaters in 1977. Many fans will tell you that it changed their life. It was a religious experience. They can remember walking out and feeling as if the world was different. I saw Star Wars in 1977 too, but I didn't have that experience. But it wasn't until I sat down in a theater to watch The Empire Strikes Back in 1980 that I had my life-altering experience with Star Wars. The first film piqued my interest, but Empire made me a fan for life. I'm Mark Marquis. Welcome to an anniversary edition of Forever Star Wars. So I wanted to mark the occasion by exploring the reasons why this movie changed my life and made me the fan I am today. Echo Station 3TA. We have spotted Imperial Walker. Imperial Walker's on the north bridge. I'm featuring the Battle of Hoth because of how it opened up my mind to the possibilities in movie making. It was the scene that forever shaped how I would view special effects in relation to storytelling. The passage of time has made Empire into a classic. It's usually at the top of most people's list for best Star Wars movie. It's definitely at the top of mine, but it's so much more. The Empire Strikes Back is my favorite movie of all time. It's not the best movie I've ever seen. It's not even the movie that had the most profound emotional impact on me. But that's not why I put it at the top. It's there because it marks a moment when I started seeing movies differently. It was the catalyst for understanding sequels and how to extend a story into a three-act structure. It was my first experience with trilogies. It was the very first time I understood the pop cultural impact of a movie. It was an event. I was too young to appreciate all of those things in 1977. The first Star Wars was, in every respect, a much bigger experience than Empire. But Empire was when I first started thinking about themes in storytelling. I was transfixed by the actors. I wanted to know how the special effects were achieved. I talked about the movie with my friends on the playground. I recreated scenes as I played with the toys. It was my birth as a nerdling. The special effects were a key factor in those formative years. 
I begged my parents to buy me a snapset model of the Battle of Hoth because I could then have a little piece of the movie in my bedroom. It was more like a diorama than a model kit. There was a large plastic preformed base that represented the snowy crevices of the battlefield. There were two Imperial walkers standing and a third one that had collapsed to the ground. In front of them were trenches in which rebel soldiers were posed and rebel gun turrets and the half-circles of the Echo Base power generator. The planet Hoth touched something in the core of my imagination. I think the reason for that was how unexpected and different Empire was than its predecessor. Movies of that era had sequels, but often they were labeled Part 2 and were essentially remakes of the original. A notable exception is The Godfather, but I was too young to watch those movies. Empire takes the strengths of the first Star Wars and builds upon its foundation. We're introduced to familiar beats, but in new ways. For instance, the opening shot is a Star Destroyer, but instead of pursuing the Rebels, the ship is canvassing the galaxy in search of their hidden base. Instead of the parched sands of Tatooine, we're introduced to the Arctic snowscape of Hoth. In the first half hour of Star Wars, R2 and 3PO encounter danger in the sand dunes of Tatooine in the form of Jawa scavengers. In the first few minutes of Empire, Luke is attacked by a Wampa on the ice plains of Hoth. Empire doesn't copy Star Wars, but it establishes itself with the same DNA of the original movie. And Empire goes a step further by having a subversive structure. The big action sequence is at the beginning. If you think about it, Empire is the inverse of A New Hope. In A New Hope, the big finale takes place over the Death Star after the movie sets up the characters and the characters' peril. The stakes are about whether the Rebels will win or lose during their stand at Yavin. Empire takes this and flips it. The battle happens early in the film. Instead of a heroic victory with cheers and celebrations and medals of valor, the Alliance is defeated and forced to retreat. The rest of the movie explores the characters in the wake of this defeat, with each situation leading to something worse, another loss, and even more failure. It was a lot for a ten-year-old to process. But even though the Battle of Hoth was a crushing defeat for the heroes, it still kept me on the edge of my seat. My dad had taken me to see the first movie back in 1977. My mom stayed home with my little brother, who was only two. But in 1980, my brother joined my dad and I for Empire. Brandon was too young to understand much of what he was seeing on the movie screen. But I remember distinctly what it felt like to imagine seeing it through his eyes. I kept looking over at him to see if he was reacting the same way I was. It was the first time I understood the power of a shared theatrical experience. Star Wars, to me, has become a communal tradition. By opening the film with a location like Echo Base, The Empire Strikes Back established Hoth as its own character. The immersive world-building had an immediate impact on my imagination. At the time, the number of months or years that passed in the story since A New Hope was unclear. But it had been long enough for the Alliance to construct an intricate and sophisticated base within the glacial plains of Hoth. The Star Wars Complete Locations book published by Lucasfilm and DK is a fascinating resource if you ever want to dive deep into the minutiae of famous locations from the films. <laughs> 
I've used it to research one of my previous travelogue episodes of Forever Star Wars. The Hoth entry of the book reveals Echo Base as a massive engineering achievement. The rebel engineers bored through the ice of Hoth like an ant colony, creating tunnels and passages and chambers which formed a complex and disorienting maze-like structure. I imagine this was intentional, as any Imperial assault on the base would come from the surface. Echo Base was designed to be confusing to any Imperial infiltrators. The base was large enough to house a number of Gallo-Free Yards transports. Those were the 90-meter-long ships that reminded me of seed pods. An appropriate metaphor, come to think of it. The rebels were seeding distant worlds with their fight against tyranny and oppression. The transports literally planted them on new worlds on which to make their stand. Echo Base also contained a livestock stable of domesticated indigenous tauntauns. The docile animals were well suited to serving as pack mules and patrol mounts for the rebellion. Tauntauns weren't just a cool addition to the world building, there was actually a logical reason for them. Indigenous animals were more likely to withstand the punishing conditions of Hoth. Droids or transports not yet modified were prone to freezing and malfunctioning in the Arctic temperatures. Echo Base was a feat of engineering providing a shelter from the elements and from Imperial retribution. But on one bright morning, an unusually clear weather day for Hoth, the retribution came. The Rebellion put their multi-tiered escape plan into play. The first transports would escape under the cover fire from a Kuat Drive Yard V-150 Ion Cannon, proving that the Rebel Alliance had its own arsenal of superweapons. Stand by, ion control. Fire. The cannon's suppression fire took out the systems of the closest Star Destroyer, thus ensuring the escape of the first transport. This certainly did feel like the Star Wars I remembered. The hopeful exuberance. The first transport is away. But what I didn't know was that this would be the last celebratory moment for quite a while. Feeling all right, sir? Just like new, Dak. How about you? Right now, I feel like I take on the whole empire myself. I know what you mean. The icy mist on the horizon concealed an advancing assault on the front lines of the battlefield. All-terrain armored transports came into view. John Williams' score originally contained an alternate introduction for these lumbering beasts. Williams wanted to herald their entrance with a mechanized march that was ultimately discarded, but the AT-ATs really didn't need a musical motif. Their stature spoke for itself. But Williams did keep the chaotic mechanical approach for the remainder of the score for the Battle of Hoth. The score is filled with percussive elements. It feels chaotic, urgent. It sounds like the confusion of battle, 
The reason this movie is my favorite film of all time is because of the impact it had on me at such a young age. The original 1933 version of King Kong is often cited by Star Wars special effects artists as a pivotal moment in their development as a film fan, as was recently expressed by animation director Hal Hickel in the Mandalorian docuseries Disney Gallery. Oh, for me, it was the original King Kong. I saw it on TV when I was six or seven, and I was really unhappy with the treatment of Kong at the end of the film, so my <laughs> mom helped me draft a letter to the local TV station, who I held <laughs> responsible, and, um, wow. but, it, but it got me interested in stop motion. So I was doing stop motion when Star Wars came out. Yeah. I was 13. I was already shooting stop motion stuff with a Super 8 camera. Star Wars came out, and then that just broadened my whole interest in visual effects. You know, I want to know how Luke's speeder was done, I want to know how the lightsabers were done, and the spaceships and everything else, and so uh, that kind of sealed the deal. My moment came from Star Wars, and it was the AT-AT walkers from The Empire Strikes Back. Back then, we called them AT-ATs. Some people still do, much to the consternation of the rest of fandom. Yes, of course, the proper pronunciation is AT-AT. We say A-T-S-T, or A-A-T, or A-T-T-E, so why do so many old geezers like myself still cling to AT-AT? It probably has something to do with the toy commercials from 1980. Long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, the Star Wars saga began, and Kenner continues the excitement. It's AT-AT, the old terrain armored transport from Kenner. Batteries not included. You can make AT-AT walk. You can make AT-AT's legs crush some obstacles. AT-AT has a cockpit for Imperial Commander... Say what you will about the fallacy of mispronunciation. AT-AT does sound like a name straight out of Star Wars. We had Tauntauns. Why not AT-ATs? But it stands for all-terrain armored transport, you say. We knew that back then, too. We just assumed that in a galaxy far, far away, the pronunciation was AT-AT. There's a very old line of thinking that suggests that there are no English letters or numbers as we know them in Star Wars. That's why people will spell out the nickname that Luke gives R2 as A-R-T-O-O, or his abbreviated 3PO for the protocol droid. Look at it this way. The AT-AT AT-AT debate stems from kids like me who grew up beguiled by how immersive and dense the world-building of Star Wars was. We assumed that there was an in-universe explanation for everything. The walkers could stand for all-terrain armored transports and also be pronounced AT-AT in-universe. One didn't necessarily contradict the other. But since I like consistency, I refrain from using AT-AT and go with the proper etiquette of AT-AT, even if I do still hear AT-AT in my head. Hey, some things that you learn as a 10-year-old just never quite go away. Forty years later, I can look at the walkers with a more objective eye. I can acknowledge the jerky stop motion and rough edges. I know they're an antiquated effect, and yet... I'm still transfixed by them in ways that few modern effects can thrill me. I don't see articulated models on a bed of baking soda against a painted backdrop. I see 22-meter dinosaurs stomping across a glacier towards a vulnerable shield generator. That kind of cinematic artistry happens only once in a generation, and Dennis Murin was one of the people who made it a reality. The original design for the walkers uh, came from a piece of artwork that Sid Mead had done. 
there was an ad for a, a big corporation. I saw some of the early designs for it, and originally the, the, it was always the four legs, but it had, didn't originally have the head on it, and the legs were farther apart, and it just was kind of this bulky sort of thing. And at some point in there, it became more dog-like. And so you could relate to it subconsciously. It sort of had a head, which is where the control guys kind of were, which makes no sense. Why weren't they in the actual thing? It didn't have a tail. Because they couldn't figure out how to give it a tail on it. But it had the four legs that were put together tighter so the hips weren't as wide apart. And you could really recognize it then and kind of relate to it. And it was just a great design. I was so wrapped in the magic of movie making after seeing the impressive walkers on the big screen that I bought any magazine I could find that gave some background on the production of the movie. I learned that the animators had used animals to model the movements of the walkers. The animators shot motion studies of animals in order to perfect the movements of their models. The snow walkers followed in this elephant's footsteps. Years later, when I was able to own a copy of Empire and watch it over and over, I would study the movements of the walkers to see if I could spot the pachyderm influences. There's a brief moment in the film where a walker turns its attention to an approaching snowspeeder. It takes a step back on its rear leg to brace itself as it angles to fire upon the speeder. The movement was one I recognized in elephants from nature documentaries. It opened my eyes to the secret of good special effects. They have to remind you of something that you've seen in real life. That grounds them and contributes to the suspension of disbelief. I was so consumed with the AT-ATs that I even wanted to find a way to create my own stop-motion movies at home. I scoured the pages of catalogs to see if stop-motion was a brand of camera I could order. I once sat on the steps of my elderly neighbor's front porch and showed them the catalog to get their advice, as if any older adult would know what kind of camera I needed. I sat at my dining room table and imagined the toys I would need in order to photograph my scenes. I could paint my own backgrounds, that was no problem, but I needed the right models. Kenner made AT-AT toys, but I didn't have those. I needed at least three or four. I also needed snow speeders. I only had one. Between the camera and the cost of those toys, something I knew was unlikely given my family's budget, my dreams of becoming a ten-year-old movie maker slowly started to fade. But I still had my Snapcast diorama on which to gaze upon. And study it, I did. For me, the silhouettes of the walkers against the snowscape of Hoth is as iconic as King Kong on the Empire State Building, or Jaws emerging from the water. The Battle of Echo Base was my crossroads in which my imagination and my thirst for knowledge about production coalesced into one. From that point on, I had learned a valuable skill in knowing how to spot the ways a scene is made, without losing any of the wonder of seeing it for the first time. Even before my generation had VCRs or DVD players, we played those scenes from Empire over and over again in our minds. Movies for us had become the equivalent of pop songs. We knew every lyric, every chord, every note. The pop culture we know today can be traced back to the late 70s and early 80s, to dark theaters where kids could escape into another universe. Back to the film's first act. It seemed at first that the rebellion was holding its own against the advancing Imperial forces. The front lines only needed to buy some time as the remaining fleet made a dash for safety. 
Having seen the piloting skills of Luke Skywalker in the Death Star Trench, I was not surprised when Luke came up with the idea to harpoon the walkers with tow cables. Rogue 3! Copy, Rogue Leader. Wedge, I've lost my gunner. You'll have to take this shot. I'll cover for you. Set your harpoon. Follow me on the next pass. Coming around, Rogue Leader. My eyes widened as Wedge and Jansen fired their harpoon. It found purchase on one of the walkers' feet, cut to overhead shots of the snowspeeder flying circular paths around the body of the mechanical giant, the tow cable wrapping the legs with each pass. And then the release. Cable detached. The Titan sways, and its mass collapses to the ground with a crash. Come on! As the battle raged on, the rebels took more losses. The music became more urgent. The Imperials, however, personified by General Maximilian Veers, were cool under pressure. All troops will debark for ground assault. Prepare to target the main general. He never broke a sweat. Luke, by contrast, was loudly barking directives from his cockpit. His gunner Dak was unconscious or dead. That was never quite clear to me upon my first viewing. Before Rogue Squadron could make another pass around the remaining walkers, they were dealt a one-two punch. First they lost Rogue 2, then Luke's speeder takes a hit. And goes down in the path of an AT-AT. Much like the trash compactor scene in A New Hope, the advancing walker created an agonizing suspense for me. I thought Dak might be unconscious, so when Luke appears to be fishing for something within his cockpit, I thought he was attempting to free Dak. I watched in horror as the mammoth metallic foot came down on top of the speeder. If poor Dak hadn't been dead, he sure was now. Meanwhile, inside the crumbling Echo base, Han, Leia, and 3PO found themselves among the last rebels left. Sent all troops from Sector 12 to the south slope to protect the fighters. Ah! Imperial troops have entered the base. Imperial troops have entered. Come on, that's it. Give the evacuation code signal. And get to your transports. Oh, wait for me. Begin the heroes were now in full retreat, with Luke's ship down and Leia and Han abandoning their posts to escape on the final transport. The scenes shifted to the battlefield, where even more troops scrambled to escape the Imperial onslaught. But as soldiers ran to safety, the camera cut to Luke Skywalker running beneath a walker. With his down speeder's tow cable in hand, he was going to take on an AT-AT all by himself. Like Errol Flynn in movies of old, Luke Skywalker was providing the one last heroic stand I needed to see. When he ignited his lightsaber, broke open the compartment, and threw in a detonator, my body froze. I didn't breathe. Explosions rocked the walker's interior. Flashes and sparks erupted all around it. When the head exploded, spewing inky black smoke, and the AT-AT listed to one side and fell to the ground, I nudged my little brother's arm. Who knew if he understood what had just happened? I wasn't thinking about such things. I was sharing a moment of exhilaration with my little brother. If he couldn't fathom how important this one small victory was for the Rebel Alliance, maybe he could sense my enthusiasm. After all, 
the legendary Luke Skywalker had just brought down an all-terrain armored transport with nothing more than determination and a little help from the Force. It was important for 10-year-old me to see this because it was going to be the last time the heroes landed a substantial hit against the Empire. The Rebels gained just enough small wins in the battle to keep the audience rooting for them, but each victory appears more brief than the one before it. Each gain made by the Empire seems more substantial, despite their setbacks. Luke Skywalker met each challenge on the battlefield with a kind of determination I expected from my hero. But I'd soon realize that Luke's confidence was not steadfast. He would face even more challenges ahead, and he would question himself. His friends Han, Leia, and Chewbacca would find themselves in a game of cat and mouse, leading the Empire on a thrilling chase through the cosmos until they're ultimately captured. The Empire Strikes Back is a movie about perseverance in the face of defeat. I came into the film with memories of the victory on Yavin, only to be met by the bitter losses on the battlefields of Hoth. But I don't remember feeling despair. My strongest memories of Empire are those thrilling visuals. I remember being transfixed by what was possible in movie making. Those towering giants on the horizon signal the beginning of my love affair with pop culture and special effects. There may be better movies than Empire, but it's at the top of my list because there are no better memories than being a 10-year-old and watching a Star Wars for the first time. Thank you for listening to my latest episode. I barely scratched the surface of The Empire Strikes Back. There are so many more amazing moments I could talk about, but the focus of this episode was the single greatest memory I had of the film. To honor Empire's 40th anniversary, I want to hear what your single greatest moments were. What was the one thing about Empire that affected you the most? How did your story differ from mine? Did you see it in theaters in 1980, or did you watch it much later on DVD or on Blu-ray or even recently on streaming services? No matter when you watch your first Star Wars, your story is relevant, and I want to hear it. You can send it to me at clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com and put Forever Star Wars in the subject line. To see more of my Star Wars ramblings, follow me on Twitter at DJMMarquis, D-J-M-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. And if you like lots of pictures of puppies, you can follow me on Instagram at mmarquis1205. Take care, be safe, wear your masks, practice social distancing, and I'll see you soon. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabres and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabres and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember... Do or do not. There is no try.